Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology. I'm here with... Stephen Olmarka, the Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing today? Doing all right, man. Great. It's been a busy week. I've been watching a lot of TV for some reason. And, <laughs> Good for uh, you. <laughs> it's holidays, man. What are you going to do? Uh, yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of commercials for 5G. Is 5G important to you? Oh, geez. No. <laughs> no. It seems like I, it's it's the new hot thing, but... I mean, we, we've got to find somebody who will actually utilize it. Right. Um, but then again, no, we don't. Because we still need to find people that are not only that not only need to utilize um the high speeds of an actual like hardwired connection right but people who are willing to upgrade their entire internal network right um when somebody needs the speeds enough to the point where they say okay let's let's try to upgrade um our internal wired network right. to, you know, the speeds that, you know, 5G claims to offer. Um, and then they see how expensive it is <laughs> to, to rewire everything. Like, sure. I mean, you know, my, my, my computer, I think if I wanted to run like um, 5G speeds on its, you know, on, on wired internet connection, not only would I need an internet connection fast enough for those speeds, but even if you bought the internet connection mm-hmm. that would be of that speed, I, I personally would need a new motherboard too, because the motherboard's <laughs> yeah. uh, Ethernet jack yeah. isn't d- doesn't support those speeds. Sure. So it's like I, I want to say it's kind of like you know 4K TVs, mm-hmm. um, or uh, to go back to computers like ray tracing. Sure. You know you don't need a ray tracing graphics card because there's no ray tracing capable. There's not (laughs) enough ray tracing capable video games right Right, now. Right. And then there was the whole like hubbub about um, a while back that, you know, everybody thought when, when when like the RTX series of graphics cards by NVIDIA came out that Mm -hmm. were the supposedly allegedly the first ray tracing capable uh, GPUs um, like a year later, after the RTX 20 series came out, they found out, oh, if you have like a GTX 10 series <laughs> version of graphics card, NVIDIA just released a like a, a under the radar software update. Right. So if you have a G, uh, one of the like the most recent GTX cards, like the generation of graphics card before the RTX card, those are now ray tracing capable. Right. <laughs> so those like like it's just it's going to be that, but on a much more expensive level. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, and, and just, if you need fast internet speeds, slow down <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and find out what's going to be the most economical for you. Yeah. I find and, it really interesting that you're, you're chasing the bottleneck, especially for like mobile on the consumer side, mobile applications. Like I remember the first time I actually got a data enabled phone, like really, really long time ago when I first yeah. started working, it was great. I could get emails. I could get, I had maps. It was a Windows based phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, nice. Which, you know, in retrospect, back that when I first used that phone, is just as capable as my latest Android devices. I could copy and paste, I could run multiple applications. And this was, you know, <laughs> ages ago. Oh, you could do split screen? Yeah, you could do split screen. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, but, I actually turned off the data after about a year, realizing one, the cost of it. So back then it was fairly expensive for limited data. But then I was doing basic stuff where if I'm sitting in an office or even at home, I could use my desktop or other applications or other devices. I didn't need to be mobile all that time. Or if I did, I could turn it on for a month if I was traveling, which I have done. Um, So when you extend that to what I'm doing now, I still use it just for phone, just for email. I use it for Google Maps, you know, trying to make sure I get home at a decent time or right. ways if you're that kind of person um, and social media. <laughs> I, I, I'm struggling to find where 5G is really going to make my life better as I'm walking around the city or if I'm driving around or traveling. You know, if, if I'm streaming videos or if I'm doing anything that requires any decent bandwidth, I'm going to be on a Wi-Fi network. Yeah. And I think if you're streaming 4K video right. to your 
before I even get onto that, and I do want to touch back on that, um, what you said about chasing the bottleneck is absolutely correct. Yeah. And and you need to prioritize your bottlenecks because if you're going after 5G and you need 5G speeds, you have other bottlenecks. Exactly. Sure. I'm not saying that internet speed or network connection speed is your is, is an important bottleneck for you but you probably have other bottlenecks <laughs> uh, at that point like right. like if if you're and to go back to what you were saying with like your mobile device if you're if you need 5g to stream um 4k video to your mobile device you really need to consider other bo- bottlenecks yeah do you have does your body physically have irises capable of (laughs) registering 4k video quality on a screen that's you know five inches wide in your hand on a moving train (laughs) um you know are your eyes capable enough for that can you actually can your eyes actually utilize the speed of that internet connection um for the 4k video will the screen turn of the cell phone or mobile device turn into a hot plate that you can boil water on <laughs> right will the battery last more than 15 minutes yep. like they're, they're, that's the internet you know sure it's the next step <laughs> um and i want to support uh, i do support faster internet everybody loves faster internet yeah um and it's not so much that they love fast internet it's that they hate slow internet right now, I will give you the, uh, I don't know how big the use case is. So on the East Coast, I would say this is probably a really small uh, population of users that are going to rely on this. But in rural applications, um, especially when you look at the global usage, yeah, like uh, back in India, you know, wired connections are far, few and far between unless really? you're actually in office. So most people, like... The big thing was to have a landline. So if you you were successful if you had a landline at your house, but that jumped from let's everyone get a landline to okay, you know two percent of the population has landlines to eighty percent of the population has cell phones because it's just easier to activate a SIM card than running a physical landline. Um, and I think that's that's in the U.S. also. I wouldn't say it's easy to get landlines or running you know a fiber line to people's homes is practical yeah. in all applications um also i mean i, I do see that's that a, see that in the city too because as more con- the increase in congestion and you know population densities in cities it's getting sure. more difficult to run utilities in some locations but you still have to run power so if you're running right. power other land uh other utilities you know single cable probably doesn't hurt but it's you're interesting. absolutely right. We'll see. I think you're absolutely right on that like you know we you got to think about like i mean when i was in uh, Vermont and New England uh, shooting outside the not outside the shop road tripping with Steve right. uh, for IMTS Network. Um, you know, one thing as much as I love Vermont and I, it was so awesome getting to go back there and visit there and just smelling that fresh Vermont air um, and seeing how beautiful it was. I stop. I <laughs> forgot the ugliness that was. It's hard to get a good signal up yeah, there. Yeah, that's <laughs> and true. I think I think you know five G. I'm sure Vermont would be happy if they could get four G LTE <laughs> right now. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere that is. I, I was see. at a gas station and struggling to get Google Maps running properly. There's one spot when I drop my door off at daycare, or when I park in front of the house, my phone drops at three G for some reason. I don't know why. New development? No, 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 no. Mm. It probably just some low spot in the signal just. Uh, one thing that does hurt you as you increase your frequency speed or your frequency is you lose uh, capabilities to go to penetrate through buildings. That's one drawback about 5G is the frequencies are so high that the ability to penetrate walls buildings is actually pretty poor. So you lose right. 5G strength in, in the early implementations that I've seen. Uh, and that's where 4G and 3G are better because the frequencies are lower. Right. But whatever. And I think I saw a video. No, I did see a video last year. Um by uh that one uh a tech guy on youtube marcus brownley yeah, yeah. I, don't, I probably totally mispronounced great production his value i love watching his videos <laughs> really good production <laughs> value um but he he did a video on 5g mm-hmm. on like the first neighborhood in like california or la mm-hmm. that had a 5g network up and running and he he, he showed his phone 
that had this blistering high speed on like speedtest.net or whatever the website is. I know I used fast.com now or fast. I don't know. And I, I haven't had to check the internet in a while. First world problems. Um, but uh, he, he showed, you know, a speed test on his phone directly underneath the 5G uh, tower right. that everybody thinks is spreading coronavirus. <laughs> That's fake news. Um, but he was he was directly under like, you know, the the the, the transmitter, if you would, uh, trans receive transceiver. Um, but uh, and, and it showed crazy high speed right. on his phone, um, like like 15,000 megs. It was something crazy <laughs> like that. Um, and then he was like, OK, I'm right underneath it right now. Right. And we're getting this high speed. Right. And I'm on 5G. Let me walk across the street. <laughs> Just across, across the street. The, street, the yeah. signal totally <laughs> dropped. I mean, it didn't drop. He's still getting like 3K megs. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> you're still in line yeah. of sight, just a little bit longer. Yeah, we're not, we're talking still line of sight yeah. across yeah. the street. Forget uh, going through a wall. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool. All right, let's shift gears. You uh, you mentioned something about AFM. Yeah. So since monday yep. um two days ago <laughs> i've been seeing a lot of stuff pop up on tech trends about atomic force microscopy hmm. and got a lucky it got it lucky right there i said it right um <laughs> don't say it again force microscopes i'm not going to try saying it again <laughs> afm yep. atomic force microscopes microscopy um a form of metrology because we're measuring something here sure um afms came up a lot in on tech trends. I've seen a handful of articles talking about uh, like stuff like how uh, a new method to reduce noise in AFM. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and I love metrology news and I wanted to read all about it. And I started and was like, dude, I don't even know what uh, an atomic force microscope is. Right. So I hate to break it to you, you know, and let you down to say that I don't have a particular <laughs> article of the articles that I've seen to talk to you about because before I even get into any of that news, I wanted to learn, dude, what is an atomic force microscope? Sure. So went to one of my favorite websites to get me learned on things, uh, Wikipedia Simple English, and I typed in atomic force microscope. Lo and behold, they had an entry, which is was awesome. And basically what it told me is an, an AFM, an atomic force microscope, is very similar to a well it's similar in one respect to a scanning electron microscope or an electron microscope sure in that it can see and visualize and, and thus measure um you know something as small as onto the sub molecular level right like with an electron microscope you can actually see the alignment of electrons mm -hmm. in your uh, whatever it is that you're looking at um an atomic force microscope can actually see even closer to the atomic level which is you know an electron is actually subatomic so i don't know why they're comparing them like that but anyway the differences so they're, they're both similar in that we're talking the atomic level or Very even subatomic sure um uh visualization and, and measurement um but the cool thing that i found when reading the uh, wiki article was an atomic force microscope the differences are an atomic force microscope is actually really similar to it's 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 on like a quantum level in that it's a really 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 small um probing measurement arm uh -huh. so originally i wanted to say it's a cmm and then it's like that's, that's inaccurate it's, <laughs> it's more like you know just a probe arm right but really small and because you can't have sensors or um because sensors aren't small enough to to like physically measure you know the the movement of that kind of probe um while the probe is really small and and, and can measure you know the the, the smoothness of an atom uh -huh. if you would um so what they use instead is and, and this is the microscope part because when you think microscope you think optics and when we're talking about a physical probe arm, that's not optical. The optical part is they, they the arm has a reflective surface on it uh -huh. that goes up and down with, you know, the surface that it's feeling. Um, and 
a, a laser is shined on that surface and reflected back. And as the arm goes up and down and fluctuates, you know, the distance that the laser has, the, the, elect, the photons travel in that laser beam is either elongated or, or shortened. Right. Um, and, and that's how they, you know, uh, quantitatively measure you know, the smoothness or mm. whatever it is they're trying to measure with that micro, the AFM. Sure. And I, th- I just thought it was wild because, <laughs> you know, while I'm not sure what all these articles have to do with the manufacturing industry, because <laughs> way more sciencey than it is manufacturing right sure. now. Um, it was cool. Cause it's just like, you know, a manufacturing probe arm. Um, it's like, just like manufacturing metrology, but on a quantum level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the manufacturing industry is, is constantly in search of that almighty micron right um this afms laugh at the micron (laughs) micron we're talking subatomic it is it is get out of here with that micron (laughs) it is funny you mentioned that because uh you know i have a couple articles on um uh getting to uh an improved accurate uh, machine component and the the trend of uh, subtractive manufacturing getting to better surface finishes and more precise manufacturing you know we're just a few, a bunch of years away from being light years away where we used to be 20 years ago. Oh yeah. You know, and where we're seeing that is, you know, increased horsepower, increased fuel efficiency. We're seeing moving components last longer. So I, I, you know, while this is super interesting to me, you know, being able to drag an arm and then using a laser to get a topographical image on this, thing yeah. that you it's incredibly using small all the right words <laughs> that's super small but you know in you know 10 15 years something along those lines is going to be required because of how precise manufacturing is going to oh, become yeah. and even though right now this is the expensive new technology yeah in in the future the older technologies that are simpler and less accurate are actually going to be more expensive because the technology is having to backpedal to keep up with those old products. Mm, sure. And yep. it's, that's, that's something I've recently seen with like, you know, the firearms industry mm-hmm. um, with like, you know, when you look at like the, uh, the 1911, yeah. you know, that hundred plus year old pistol design, which I'm, I, you know, I don't want to offend any boomers. I'm not going <laughs> to talk smack about, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the guns that won the world wars, but um, <laughs> um that that those guns are so expensive compared to more modern pistols and mm-hmm. handguns mm-hmm. because they're not manufactured they can't be manufactured using modern machines modern means rather those guns were made um through hand fitting sure. and stuff like that they they were you know more they were certainly more modernized in terms of manufacturing than something like a musket you know flint lock <laughs> or a uh, you know just a lock action in general a side lock yeah. um but uh compared to you know a glock sure. something like that which i don't think sees any human interaction in the assembly or the manufacturing process other than assembly right i bet you robots even assemble those before they go in the box we should, invest- we should investigate that that would be great uh, once we can go back to go, once we're allowed to uh, fly travel. overseas or even, you know, <laughs> if we uh, ever travel at all. <laughs> awesome. Steve, let's, New England. let's get into some articles, man. I'm excited to learn right. about uh, some stuff you found. Yeah. Um, switching gears again. Um, I saw, I, I was, it was funny uh, seeing uh, coronavirus test swabs coming up in manufacturing news again because like come on man that's like so three months ago <laughs> sure but uh, five months ago even but then again at, uh, you know, at the end of the day we're still in the midst of the pandemic and right. what did i just say we can't travel anywhere because this is still a thing um but uh a university in the uk uh let me try to pronounce it properly and i Bet you I'm going to butcher it, but uh, even though it's English, Wolverhampton University or the University of Wolverhampton in the UK um, has designed a 3D printed swab that more effectively and more efficiently tests for COVID. That's cool. Um, And, you know, you see some there's really not much in the article words, um, but in the picture of it this swab is really cool looking. And when you see the design of the swab, 
the end of the swab that actually collects all of the material that is to be detested for COVID mm-hmm. um, is like a lattice. Okay. And when you see this swab, it's like that can that swab can only be made by additive means. So That's it cool. was really cool. So, and it's so- awesome to see that, you know, the pandemic is still here. That's not the good thing. <laughs> but the awesome thing is like we're still innovating. Yeah. Amidst the pandemic, so much has been done. Like technology has advanced so far just in the past five months to help beat this virus, which is really cool. I do find that that's a fascinating approach to get rid of the cotton swab, basically, that they would use to probe the inside of your nose to a plastic lattice. They'll collect basically the same type of material. Uh, so, you know, if you look at getting or improving supply chains, things like that, you get rid of the need for cotton and the entire ecosystem of that yeah. Oh, yeah. to just growing a single growth uh, part. Mm-hmm. A single material. Yeah, single material. That's awesome. That's a really cool, cool article. What you have for us? Uh, the next one I got is a little more techie. It's about multi-axis compensation. Uh, so this is, nice. a, is an award from um, uh, SME uh, and Nam, NAMRI. Uh, I've attended their... Uh, technical conference for a bunch of years since I joined AMT and they have an award, the SM Wu research implementation award. Uh, it's a fascinating award where they, they track a bunch of, uh, research projects that are discussed in their, um, in their conference. And then they see if it's has made it to any type of commercial application. Uh, in this particular case, a couple of GM motors, uh, engineers developed a way to, uh, adjust their compensation for multi-axis subtractive manufacturing, uh, process lines. So if you imagine General Motors, you know, they're machining all types of different widgets, both in, in-house, and of course they have their entire supply chain that's doing it also. But they are processing a lot of parts themselves. Um, the the uh, biggest use case are their own motors, their own engines. Right. Right. So if you imagine you've got a machine this cast uh, engine block, right, it's fairly complex. In this case, they have a, a, a multi-axis uh, machine that's doing it. Uh, and then once you have your engine block, you've got your tooling, you've got your uh, rotary tables, and you've got your spindle, you have all these places of errors potential, basically compensation mm-hmm. that needs to be accounted for. If you imagine a th- simple three-axis, you know, everyone does a tooling comp, right? The size of your, the diameter of your cutter, you can adjust that compensation. And there's probably one or two uh, other um, axes offsets that you can un- incorporate. But what they've done is they, they took a step back and looked at the whole process of calibrating the machine and trying to figure out where are the errors that they need to compensate for, the, the global compensations that they need to account for. Uh, and what they did is there's a couple of techniques that you can do now. You could use, you know, ball bar tests, you can use lasers and a bunch of things. Um, but those are kind of uh, independent of the part. Um, and it takes away from the process because you have to do that every once in a while and you're trying to constantly run production parts. So what right. they decided to do is that let's take one of the production parts that we machined, do a ton of inspection on it so we get uh, data-rich uh, uh, analysis of what the part looks like and then use that data to feed back into the global compensation. So what they're doing is they added probably a little bit more inspection data to some of the production parts, but they continue running the parts and using that data to feed back into the the global compensation for that specific machine. Now it's not okay. continuous, not ongoing. So what they do is they run it uh, for for a while, and then maybe the next week they'll run it again and do this test. But it's a fairly fairly complex gotcha. process. So it's not for every part, but it's, not, it's like batch yeah, testing. Yeah, it's, it's a form of batch testing, right? Exactly. And yeah. compensation. Yeah, it's not close. When you say compensation, do you mean like okay, before they even have a part, they they design whatever they're trying to make like an engine block they designed the engine block because it's a gm um and because it's gm i imagine it's a a 350 but um they design the engine block in cad right and they have their cad design they move it to g code they run the program in the machine they spit out their first part Mm -hmm. and then they you know scan the part every which way right and essentially scan it until they have a 3d model of the part they just made and then they compare the part they just made to the original model and by seeing what changed you know what may or may not be in and out of spec um 
they comp they use those differences to compensate for the next part being made or in this case because it's not ongoing the next batch of parts being right, made right so okay. there's there's a couple of things that are semi-statics right so they're compensating for a couple of things uh so you have your uh different tables so for the a and b table on your machine you can compensate for those uh, also you have to compensate for your fixture Right, so yeah, if you have a, a static fixture that's in your machine, uh, mm-hmm. that's compensated for, and then any other additional rotary offsets. So as long as none of that changes, those right. compensations should be consistent. But uh, of course, you know, in manufacturing, things wear, you may bump it, or things will wear yeah. down. So realistically, wearing parts, you've yeah, got exactly. How many times is a part being fixtured? Yeah, exactly. So if you take, as soon as you take that fixture off and remount it somewhere else, you're probably going to totally have to run. different. Right, right. So. It, if you look at like setting up a machine, this is probably, I would say it's part of the setup process. So as long as that one fixture, one assembly, one type of process is constantly being run, that data is probably still valid. Now you probably want to run validation checks to make sure things haven't been, that the third shift guy didn't drop coffee on yeah. it or bump it something. <laughs> nothing's uh, out of spec. Nothing's out of spec, right. But it's a it's a really interesting process that they you know using the existing data so you're not uh, shutting down the machine to um, you know verify compensation um, using the uh, the data that you have on hand to drive mm-hmm. the uh, machinery and now and looking at the research paper it's a really complex math and it's funny because I they bet. they they pull a lot of uh, data and they're doing a lot of um, arrays and matrices and, you know, linear algebra, which is the most complex algebra of all time. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But then, uh, you know, they, once they distill it into the end goal of improving accuracy and therefore improving throughput, you know, this is really tangible, uh, uh results that, uh, they're seeing on the floor. Oh man. I just got flashbacks. <laughs> I remember, I remember, uh, taking linear algebra. Yeah. Well, first off, the hardest math that I had ever taken, and and it was, it was the when I say hardest, it was the difference between the last math course that I had taken, which was Calc three, and then there was the huge jump to differential equations. Yeah, I struggled yeah. with yeah. differential equations, yep. and linear algebra was definitely harder, but I I did better in the class, um, just because I feel like the jump wasn't as drastic. But uh, oh man, yeah, <laughs> linear algebra is intense. Yeah. I don't want to go back. It's definitely flashbacks of sitting in some small classrooms in the university. <laughs> That's tough. All right, man, what uh, article do you have? Um, oh, man, it's going to be tough to follow that one. Um, but uh, I saw this really cool article, and I figure we can have a nice little discussion about this one. Mm-hmm. In From Robotics and Automation News, uh, they, have a, they have a headline that's new universal operating system makes robots interact and learn from humans and other robots. So for that was the headline, but forget the headline. The, the, the news is that there's this company called Cobotics, and the spelling of Cobotics is really cool. It's Q-O-B-O-T-I-X. So very, <laughs> very trendy and, and, and youthful, but uh, great name. Sure. I think it's an awesome name, Cobotics. Um, they, they've, what Cobotics is doing is what they've done is they've created a robot arm um, operating system hmm. uh, that can be used on whatever robot you have. Okay, you know, and it's it's kind of like immediately I thought of you know, you know Android versus iOS, um, you know, an Android phone and, and Windows computers. Uh, Windows, you know, Windows operating system doesn't run on windows brand computers no they, they they run on dell they run on hp they run on you know insert brand here mm-hmm. um apple is different but they're different um and i think it's really cool that uh cobotics has made a universal operating system that can be used on whatever robot you have so as long as That's the cool. manufacturer supports it but and and i think this this comes up with two um positives um, one being that, you know, it, it gives you the freedom to experiment with different brands and models of robots. Uh, so if, you know, you, you're used to one robot, um, at your facility and mm-hmm. your guys are buying a second one, but it has to be different than the one you currently have, the learning curve won't be as difficult because right. you can 
you use this new operating system and both robots can run on the same operating system now. And also to, you know, the, the, the big topic that everybody's uh, blabbing about today, you know, supply, supply chain shifting um, and production lines, you know, what, what, you know, yesterday, you may have had two different manufacturing cells, one using like a KUKA robot and the other one using a FANUC. And now you need to do a production line shift and maybe you need both of those two different robots in the same cell. Mm -hmm. What's the quickest and easiest way to get them working in sync and working together and communicating properly. Right. It would certainly help if they were using the same software that, yep. that operates them, the same operating system. And you know, that's, that's the other one. And uh, I, 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 I don't know enough about it sure, and sure. I'm so interested to hear more about Cobotics and I'd love to learn more about this operating system. And, you know, I'm, I'm also itching a little bit to get back into the office so we can play with the test <laughs> bed again, because I really miss our Cobot. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned, I remember unboxing our Cobot and yeah. seeing how easy it was to use. I can't imagine how cool it would be uh, using that thing and then getting another robot, like if, you know, that's made by, U factory. If we got a FANUC and it was like the getting it up and running was just as easy mm -hmm. as the first one because they're both on the same uh, operating system mm -hmm. now. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I think you mentioned a couple of good trends that uh, I just want to recap. You know, sure, being able to shift production lines, so getting to like a more flexible, um, high mix, low volume type of environment. I think that tremendously helps you if you have multiple robots and the idea of not going with one brand across your factory, but being able to choose um, robots based on, like the entire spectrum of robots based on the individual needs. So you could have, you know, uh, you know, a higher model on one side versus something that's less expensive on one on the right. other side. Completely different brands. One could be a cobot, one not an industrial, just a traditional industrial robot. So I think sure. that's very interesting, and I'm, I'm definitely interested to learn how it works with the with ROS, the robotic operating system, right? This mm -hmm. sounds like it could be a layer on top of that where it might add some intelligence yeah. or some analytic power to uh, to uh, the, the platform. But I definitely agree that being able to have one way to uh, operate the machinery, you know, multiple machines, is definitely uh, a really great approach. Like, I mean, we're talking about robots right here, but how great would it be to, as like a machinist, to say, uh, you know, oh, if you've, if you've ran one 5-axis CNC mill, you've ran them all. Right. And right. I think this, you know, th this universal operating system will give, you know, robot programmers mm -hmm. the opportunity to say, well, if, you know, if you've, if you've run a seven-joint uh, universal robot, sure. then you can run any um uh, robot, the seven yep. joint robot. Yep. Awesome. Uh, the next ar article I have is about uh, additive in the army, big yes. army. This is not the little uh, T handle thing that they did a while ago, the little uh, useless tool <laughs> that they use for their M249. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, when they're subdivisions, the U.S. Army Aviation and Missile Command, they've been okay. doing actually quite a bit. So they partnered with the uh, Wichita State University. Uh, this, the university has a, a branch called the National Institute for Aviation Research. Um, we toured their facility with one of our committees uh, last year, I think. And it's impressive. It's really, really impressive at uh, Wichita State. And they do not just defense stuff, but they do all aviation type research. And one of the interesting things that came out of there was they helped. Uh, so when you get on the plane, you know, the size of the liquid bottles that you're uh, only allowed to take, they help yeah. determine that size based on what's the worst chemical that they can put in there and what, if it explodes, how much damage could do the fuselage. Whoa. So if, I mean, that's the type of fundamental. So they reason. came up with that figure. Well, I would want to point all the fingers at them, but they help support the <laughs> FAA in getting to that figure, right? And of course, that's you cool. have layers and layers of safety on top of that. So it's not just that's the maximum that's required, but, you know, that's something they're comfortable with. So that's the type of stuff that they're doing at um, Wichita State there. And one of the interesting things about this article that I found was uh, the aviation side of the U.S. Army is running into platform problems where the their aircraft is lasting longer than the engineering tools that they have that designed that. So one example is the Blackhawk. Uh, Steve, who's older, the Blackhawk or me? 
Blackhawk. <laughs> the Blackhawk is definitely older than, than me. So the uh, first flight for the Blackhawk was in 1974. So if you imagine if you're an engineer in 1974, you're probably using, uh, you know, a piece of uh, mylar and drawing your drawing, doing your drawing on top of that with ink and uh, a pencil. Uh, you may transition in the 80s to some type of CAD or maybe doing some finite element analysis um, uh, at that point also. Uh, but, you know, we're in 2020 and we have parts that don't technically exist anymore in the engineering world, right? So if they've got a, yeah. you know, an older aircraft that's towards the end of life and they've got a, you know, a casing that has a crack in it that can be fixed somehow, but there's no engineering data for it. There's no drawings that exist. And, you know, how do they continue that platform uh, by just doing repairs? So they've... Yeah, there's no CAD file Yeah, there's it. no CAD you file. you got to find some right. pencil drawings. Exactly. Well, the supplier may be gone, right? So they... Oh, yeah. Suppliers change all the time. They turn down bids. They go out of business. Um, so the whole uh, ecosystem of engineering data and suppliers it's really, really tough to manage when you've got something that's been around for a really, really long time. Um, so what they've been working on is a way to create a digital twin of the entire Blackbird or the Blackhawk so that in the future, if something breaks, they can figure out the best way to remanufacture that part. So it's an interesting dilemma of uh, a couple of things. One is the engineering data support at, but also how do they remanufacture something that doesn't exist that can't be manufactured that's not being manufactured right now yeah uh so i just yeah. want, I have a quote here from I, uh, go ahead i think that's awesome i can't wait to hear the quote but th this is really great because this immediately makes me think of you know when, when you're going from you know hand done drawings yeah. and designs to you know what's now the digital age there's a lot lost and and what makes me really proud about our military now is they were there it seemed they seemingly have learned from the mistakes of the swiss watch industry <laughs> sure. when uh when quartz watches came about and almost killed the mechanical watch industry mm -hmm. a similar thing happened to this and the army is getting on top of this before it happens to their Blackhawks, yeah. uh, which is really great. And, and to some degree, you could say that uh, the, the arm, I'm sure a lot of soldiers would disagree with this, but the army works more efficiently than the Swiss watch industry <laughs> works better than a Swiss clock. Yep. That's cool. Uh, so the, quote? the quote here is uh, from someone in the military here. It's uh, a key focus of AIMCOM's AM policy is on inserting evolving technologies into enduring designs that have relied on traditional manufacturing processes throughout their acquisition life cycle. However, future aviation uh, are benefiting as well from from advanced manufacturing. You know, it. so in the end, you know, I agree with you that they're evolving their previous platforms, but I'm really curious to see what they're doing with their current platform. So like, you know, this isn't the Air Force. Well, does the Air Force? Does the Army? Army doesn't have an F-35 variant, do they? The Air Force, Navy, and Marines do, right? Air Force, Navy, and Marines. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I'm just curious what they're going to do with the new platform that they come out with. What are they going to do with the data rights associated with that platform? So an example of this Blackhawk that they're redesigning, they're taking all the CAD data and putting it into their own vaults. You know, They're using the Naira facility at Wichita as a means to achieve that data. But something that's going to be designed in the future i think we have we're going to run into the similar problem that consumers have right now with data rights so when i rent a movie or when i purchase a digital movie if you ever read the user end user license agreement you don't own that movie you paid for the right to use their platform for as long as they hold it they could revoke mm -hmm. your access to those movies at any time um without telling or they'll probably tell you of course but for example you've paid for subscription to netflix movies come and go on netflix all the time yeah. um if you buy something on Amazon Prime and the, their license that they have with the studio gets pulled, you no longer have license or access to that movie through Prime. So I'm curious to see for future platforms how they will handle digit data rights and you know kind of who's going to own and pay for what in the future. But we'll see. Well, if there's if there's one you know American organization, if you would to figure that out, it would definitely be the military. Because there's there's a bunch of uh, not necessarily copyright, but definitely IP right. uh, protect protection and concern when it just comes to you know any sort of military TDP technical mm -hmm. data package. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Talk to Colton FN about that. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. 
All right, Steve, let's uh, let's talk about some. You got some more info on robots, don't you? Oh, yeah. Toshiba has been doing a lot of work with mobile robot arms. That's cool. And it's 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 not so much that it, it doesn't feel like it's that new. Sure. I feel like this is a pretty old concept as as have been like you know a couple things that we've talked about today but um what what toshiba is basically experimenting with but actually getting a lot more progress done with it they're not like experimenting it experimenting with it on like an academic level like they actually want to produce these and make them which right. is awesome but uh toshiba is essentially taking like a warehouse robot mm-hmm. um which is basically a mobile platform you know it's it, it's a robot that it's not a forklift. It looks like a coffee table sure. um, that can hold a lot of weight right. and it's on wheels and it just moves from one in the, the warehouse. Some, you know, somebody puts stuff on it and the, the robot knows where to go. Mm-hmm. You know, once, once it's told it has its payload, it goes somewhere else. Um, Toshiba's basically taken that, made them more accurate. And then instead of carrying a payload, instead on top, they've put a, you know, a robot arm. So they're making cool. mobile, uh, robot arms on top of like a, well, they're making robot arms mobile by putting them on warehouse <laughs> robots. And it, it's really cool. Cause like, you know, when, when you go into IMTS, you know, you see some really advanced robot arms knowing exactly where something is. They, they have a vision system right? and they know exactly where it is and they know how to grab it regardless of how fragile the part is. They grab it wherever it is. Even if it's moving, mm-hmm. they grab it, puts it somewhere else um and, and and you know it does its task mm-hmm. but those robot arms that we've seen do a task like that at IMTS have always been on like you know a pedestal have right, always been right. on what's the term for it is it a pedestal sure sure okay they've always been on like you know in, in a little cell and they've not been mobile right. they've been bolted down and they're all the robot itself is always in the same place every time. The parts that it's grabbing may be in a different location. Right. But now Toshiba's like, why does the robot have to be stationary? And and they've they're really doing a, a lot uh, with that. That's interesting because I think back to the article they mentioned previously. Um, you know, have you ever been to a factory where they are using robotic arms for either machine tending or packaging? Yes. Yeah. And. I'd say 50% of the cases is the robot moving all the time. No. Yeah. The, so robots. So like if, if the robot arm is mach- tending a machine, just loading raw material, taking it off, which is great. Um, passing it on the next cell. Um, it's, it's got a lot of downtime. It's waiting for those cycles to finish. Right. Right. So if you're machining cycles, five minutes, say you've got three or f- say if you've got five machines in your cell in a circular and the ro- one robot arm service all of them, which is great. Yeah. It's waiting five minutes every time to do a 30 second operation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think well, one uh, potential application here at C for Toshiba Robot is, you know, having one arm servicing multiple cells. So, right, you can time your yeah. cells so you can go in between each of the cells. So, you, you, the total cost of your robot plus the platform that's driving on it's obviously going to be higher than just one robot, but it's cheaper than five robots, right? That you're going to have stationary. Yeah. I think this is an interesting approach on a couple of layers. One, of course, for warehouse robots, just being able to have increased capability to pick up stuff from uh, bins and shelves. But on the factory floor, if the cap- load capability is high enough and it truly does have, let's say, let's say uh, enough self-awareness that it could position itself and say, hey, this thing's done. Let me move it to over here and then let me go to the next cell when this is ready i think being able to amortize your cost of that platform over five different cells is pretty awesome yeah no that's it's because a robot i think is is limited and i'm repeating you a little bit but it's limited by the stuff that it's around that's around it it's limited by the fact that things need to come to the robot before it can do yeah. the things that it needs to do and then move on yep. as this techno Toshiba is, is making, and this is no new concept. It's just mm-hmm. Toshiba's finally taking it from like an academic project and making, turning it into a product. Right. Um, and it's, it's great to see that Toshiba wants to make the robot do go to its work. Mm-hmm. 
and then do its work and then go to more work. I mean, it, it kind of makes me think of, uh, you know, when I used, when I worked retail, when I worked at Total Wine and more, um, you know, I, I would have, everybody would have like, you know, their list of jobs that they got to do today for the day yep. and uh, you'd go do it. And maybe you worked really fast so you could get a little bit of downtime. Um, and if like, you know, a manager walked by and saw that uh, you were just standing there not doing anything. They'd right. be like, go, go find some work to do. <laughs> it's like, now imagine telling a robot to do, go find seeing some a work. robot just standing there. It's like, you can't help it, man. The thing can't move. Yeah, exactly. You know, but now robots have no excuse. Yep. Yep. That's awesome. So the last article I have actually goes against robots. Boo for robots. So it's an article from Core 77 and it talks about uh, one of the Tesla fan, Core 77. Oh, oh Yeah. So it's a uh, article about one of the Tesla factories uh, that's producing the Model Y, and uh, it, Elon Musk uh, uh, outlines a problem statement where they they have a throughput issue. It sounds like so they have a rear uh, one of the rear assemblies uh, for the rear crash zone has quite a few pieces, about seventy some components that gets glued, riveted, joined in many different ways. Uh, it's not an uncommon problem in automotive uh, manufacturing where. Uh, you know, they probably have a casting, some extrusions, some other sheet metal parts. Uh, and they chose those processes based on the economics of those parts individually. Uh, then everything gets put together somehow, which is great. I, I'm a big fan of multi-piece, multi-component assemblies. But the problem that he's running into is, one, I think he's got a footprint issue. And the article kind of alludes to that later, that bringing all these components into one place and having an assembly line put them together, uh, they're running out of space. So what they yeah. what uh, the team over in uh, Tesla has decided to do is let's convert this entire assembly into a single casting, uh, high pressure uh, casting that um, they could re- get basically reduce seventy pieces down to one or two. Sounds like yeah. Um, so in this case, it looks like they're pushing about one hundred eighty pounds of aluminum for the casting. So it's a pretty big assembly, and then the yeah. machines that they br- they're bringing in are fairly large. Um, you know, they're, they're, let's see. The machine weighs 410 tons uh, mm-hmm. for this uh, high-pressure casting, and it's a uh, uh, it, it's interesting. And in the end, you know, they talk about potentially throughput savings of not having to process it. But in the end, the quote is that they're, they're saving footprint, so they can bring in yeah. basically one machine. I'm not sure if they're doing additional processing to it. It didn't sound like they were, um, but who knows. I, I- I just hope that saving reflects to the customer in some way. No, no, no. Um, they won't do yeah, that. Because I really like Tesla. And, <laughs> do you? <laughs> and, and I do like Tesla, good, and I like good. Elon Musk. Um, good but, for you. Uh, you know, it sounds like this This happens all the time in sure. the auto industry. You see, you know, just look at door panels, for crying out loud. You've right. got like a switchboard uh, for to roll down your windows. You've got the lock. Uh, you've got all those things and you think that they're individual components, but let's say you go to whatever manufacturer car you have, you go to like a, a wholesaler of parts mm-hmm. to replace something and you come to find out because like, you know, your passenger front window switch breaks right? and you think, okay, I just need to replace the the, the switch for the passenger, uh, the front passenger window. Right. And you come to find that, nope, that's an entire assembly that <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> requires the replacement of yeah. the entire interior door panel. Yep. And what you thought was maybe a $50 switch mm-hmm. with markup is actually a $1,500 assembly. Yep. And, you know, going from, you know, 70, I, I don't know if you said 70, but going through tens of parts that make up mm-hmm. a, uh, um, a crumple zone to one to three parts to right. make a crumple zone to me that sounds like okay what normally was like you know a 500 dollars fender bender mm-hmm. requires you know a three thousand dollar new <laughs> crumple zone right you know and, right. and you know in 10 years will that car be totaled if you get in the slightest accident true yeah that's the dilemma i faced i had uh one of my wife's first car was a Nissan Xterra that we bought uh, when we first got married. And uh, it was towards the end of his life recently. And one of the license plate lights went out. Oh, and no. uh, I looked up through, you know, the traditional means of uh, going straight to the dealership website and looking up the part. I, it's a license plate light that's yeah. 
you know, through the bumper, you know, a little hole through the bumper and some lights, Maybe you just a wire a harness. Hole. No, no, I, I tried all that. That didn't work. Uh, it, oh, no. It fell at one point and the wire got ripped out on one side. So I failed oh. inspection. So I need to replace the wire harness basically with the bulb. So I go to the website and I say, okay, I need this. I see the part number for that wire harness. I said, guys, do you have this? I called around. I said, no, it's sold with the bumper. I oh, got to replace the bumper for this light. I almost yeah. threw my phone across the room. I was like, I, I guess I got to go to the junkyard. I found some third party that kind of fit. So in the end, That's I, good. I agree that the aggregation but, of these parts is kind of a interesting. But drama. I know the answer to this question, but where's that car today? Oh, it is not close by. <laughs> <laughs> Had it towed away when it couldn't pass inspection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's it's like, it's as cool as much as I love, um, you know, lane keep assist and um, the, uh, you know, what, what is it? The automated cruise control sure. that detects a car in front of mm -hmm. you and slows down automatically. So, mm -hmm. you know, you could be reading a book at the wheel, which you are not supposed to do at all. Sure. Um, but like, you know, back in the day, <laughs> you know, you, you get into a small fender bender mm -hmm. and you break your taillight or your headlight, you know, whatever. It's it's a couple hundred bucks, right, you know. Right. If you don't have halogens, maybe it's a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. If it's if you're still running halogens, um, you know, it's probably fifty bucks for a new headlight assembly for all that plastic and whatnot. Um, but uh, today, you know, with all these LEDs, it's not even LEDs that are the culprit. Mm -hmm. um, sure, it's great that you don't have to replace bulbs and modern headlights and taillights. But with lane keep assist and all that stuff, all of that, all of that junk is packaged in the head and tail lights. Oh, is it really? Like the, the, the oh, parking man. sensors, sure. um, the stuff that that makes the uh, that allows the car to parallel park for you. Mm -hmm. All of that technology, those military grade lidar <laughs> and radar systems, yeah. are in the head and tail lights. Oh no, that's terrible. So you know, you look at. I think I think it was the um, the Volvo. Uh, the modern Volvo cars with uh -huh. the Thor's hammer style uh, oh, sure. um, headlight. That's what it's great. called. That's yeah. what they call it. The Thor's <laughs> hammer. That's that broke a world record for being um, the first uh, $1,500 uh, <laughs> headlight uh, OEM headlight. Jeez. Yeah. You break a headlight in a Volvo. Good luck. I might that could total a car. That could total in 10 years. <laughs> that could total the car. One headlight done. Yeah, oh, man. We can't do this. Can't. This is unsustainable. <laughs> All right, Steve, man, this is a great episode. Where can they find more info about us? Um, sorry, there's a car alarm. Box. That's okay. right. Somebody just got it. Um, Working from home, can, man. You can find, our listeners can find more about us by going to amtnews.org. And if you want to keep track of us through the uh, the tech, uh, the tech Trends weekly update, and what is it called? I don't even know what it's called now, man. A podcast? Um, the tech, AMT Tech Trends? You can find us in the pod. You can find the podcast at amtnews.org. Um, you can find the uh, the the tech, the weekly technology update. The tech report. by going to amtnews.org/slash/subscribe. That car alarm really threw me off. Man, I, talk about other technology that's expensive. Am I going to have to edit this now? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, Ben. That's all right. It's a good try, Steve. So you can find us on any podcasting app by searching for AMT Tech Trends. AMT Tech Trends. Yeah. Search on your favorite podcast app. Awesome. And, Thanks, Steve. Or you can go to amtnews.org. Great. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.